that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Tonight on The Readout... I'm sick of Republicans losing. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first? Or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which case, we've got two of them on stage tonight. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Here's the truth. You're just the easy answer. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. Okay, well, that part's pretty accurate. A party of losers. We saw a lot of heated rhetoric in last night's debate, but in the end, they're all just running for second place. Also tonight, Joe Manchin, the Senate's most conservative Democrat, announces he will not be running for re-election. Plus, new reporting that special counsel Jack Smith plans to make Donald Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection the centerpiece of Trump's federal election interference trial. But we begin tonight with the Republican presidential debate featuring five candidates who, let's just keep it real, will almost certainly not be getting the nomination. But despite the digs and petty insults and Ron DeSantis' awkward attempt to express joy, there were some notable takeaways because what we have seen from those five candidates is a pretty distinct snapshot of what the Republican Party of today stands for and what a Republican presidency in the year 2024 would look like policy-wise, really 2025. And it is alarming, starting with the sheer amount of warmongering, specifically on the topic of Iran, when some of the candidates seem to not so subtly suggest getting the U.S. involved in a full-fledged war. If you want to stop the 40-plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake, and the head of the snake is Iran. Iran responds to strength. You punch them one and you punch them hard, and they will back off. I would say you you harm a hair on the head of an American service member and you are going to have hell to pay. We are not just going to sit there and let our service members be sitting ducks. The hawkishness continued on the response to the Israel-Hamas war. Each candidate using violent rhetoric to pledge their support to Benjamin Netanyahu and his efforts to eliminate Hamas by any means necessary. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them. Wipe Hamas off of the map. And what is Biden doing? Not only is he not helping the Jewish students who are being persecuted, he is launching an initiative to combat so-called Islamophobia. Not a single candidate expressed any support for providing humanitarian aid to Gaza or even mentioned the more than 10,000 who have been killed there, including thousands of women and children, or the fact that millions of Palestinian civilians have been displaced due to Israel's relentless bombing campaign. Some, however, did hint at also potentially going to war with Mexico, saying this about the southern border. 
If someone in the drug cartels is sneaking fentanyl across the border when I'm president, that's going to be the last thing they do. We're going to shoot them stone cold dead. We'll send special operations in to take out the cartels. We need to go to where they're distributing it, where the supply centers are, and take them out. What I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border, and then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. On top of all that, you had freeform right-wing podcaster Vivek Ramaswamy quite literally calling Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who is Jewish, by the way, a Nazi, real presidential. And then there was the fact that after getting shellacked a mere 24 hours prior in yet another election where abortion rights were on the ballot, you think that maybe, just maybe, they would take the hint that Americans do not want abortion bans, except they didn't. They just went on to talk about banning abortion anyway. I'm 100% pro-life. I have a 100% pro-life voting record. I would certainly, as president of the United States, have a 15-week national limit. I would not allow states like California, Illinois, or New York to have abortion up until the day of birth. A pregnant woman walking down the street, she's assaulted. The unborn child dies in that assault. You find me one person in this country who says that that criminal does not deserve liability for that death. I trust the people of this country, state by state, to make the call for themselves. Let's find consensus. Let's agree on what, how we can ban late-term abortions. This is the message of Republicans in 2024. Control women's bodies and bomb stuff. They have no other governing philosophy. That's just it. That's it. And in the meantime, the elephant who wasn't in the room, Donald Trump, who is almost definitely getting the nomination next year and will fully try to end democracy as we know it, remains unscathed. He also just announced that he won't be at the fourth debate later, uh, the fourth debate either. So just brace yourself for even more of this nonsense. Joining me now is Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster, strategist and MSNBC political analyst and Stuart Stevens, political strategist and senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. I, I am going to start with you first, Stuart, because, I mean, what we heard last night in some ways is irrelevant because these people essentially are irrelevant. But to me, what was relevant and why we wanted to play those clips is that it does speak to what they believe the core philosophy of the Republican Party should be. And apparently it is going to war not once, not twice, not just in the Middle East, but also with our neighbor to the South. Your thoughts? Yeah, I guess if you're Canadian, you can sleep well tonight, but that might come up in the next debate. Um, you know, this is what happens when, uh, uh, as you said, a party doesn't have any governing philosophy. And that really means it doesn't really have a reason to exist. So it becomes like a, a sports team where the lunatic fans who run out on the, the field naked, you know, they're the ones who get the attention. Um and there's no, the thing that really struck me was there was no kind of decency or humanity or kindness uh, at all on that stage. I mean, who are these people that you would say, look, if anything happened to me, I'd like you to take care of my family. <laughs> um, and I think that's really an important role of the president of the United States in our system. And, you know, that's something that President Biden does very well. Um, <laughs> and, and it's very genuine to him. So I, I think when you look at this, all this, you know, we're going to like a bomb Iran, we're going to bomb Mexico, we're going to kill these people. Um, I, I just think 
most Americans look at that and they're right. It is a party of losers. You know, what's interesting about that, Cornell, is that, you know, I can remember the late John McCain, would he did the joke where he would sing bomb, 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 Iran. Um, you would have Lindsey Graham joke about flattening Iran and going to war with Iran. And this is like a thing, right? So in the Republican Party, we know there is a core of warmongering. That's a part of it. There's a neoliberal version of it, too. Let's just be clear. The Democratic side that weren't uh, unhappy about going to war with Iraq. But one of the reasons that Barack Obama beat John McCain, despite John McCain being a war hero, is that Americans were sick of going into foreign wars. That even Trump voters, one of the things that kind of unites them is the idea that they don't think Trump would put us in World War III. So the idea that these guys think warmongering is the way to win over his voters, to me, seems upside down and backwards. But you're the pollster, so I'll let you weigh in. Well, I'm going to de- deconstruct it a little bit more than that, Joy. I mean, there is a fine line between being tough, right? And it's sort of this idea of being tough on crime and being tough on immigration, be tough on terrorism. There's a fine line between being tough and camouflage for hate. And I think they cross that line uh, at the debate. When you look at the language about gun- you know, shooting people dead and, and bombing and wiping people off, Joy, that's not about being tough on terrorism. That is crossing the line and becomes a camouflage for hate. And I hate to say it, but you know American history very well. There is a landing space for hate in in, 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 in in this country. And hate does mobilize people in this country. We've seen it time and again. I would think, matter of fact, it is the whole, for me, the whole predicate of Donald Trump's presidency is that is that hate. And and what I saw on on, on display there is crossing the line. It is not about being tough. It is about hate, right? Camouflage as being tough. And it's hate against, you know, surprise, surprise, a bunch of brown people. Uh, so I'm not surprised by that at all. And, and by the way, to say to you just a second, Cornell, not only just hate against brown people, because you're right, Iran becomes a surrogate for Muslims. You know, we're going to shoot people in Mexico and talking about fentanyl becomes a surrogate for brown people south of our border. And to have three non-white people on that stage who were in some ways the most vehement and most vicious about the violence that they would do as president was interesting. And of course, Ron DeSantis, who has already done violence to desperate Venezuelan migrants by going and collecting them from Texas and shipping them off wherever he would, you know, his his paid airline flights would take them, that it, it does feel like maybe that is what they're zeroing in on, is that they believe they've decided that the Republican Party hates people of color, maybe, and that they think if they show that they share in it, that maybe that'll help them. Well, uh, there is something I think there about sharing the values, right? It is, it is. How can I prove that I'm not like one of them? It's like I'm going to double down and be as angry and as hateful up towards them as possible. So I do think it it, it is something sort of. Uh, how can I get more more credibility with with the base around these these conversations, um, having to deal with hate and taking on what they again sort of camouflage terrorism? What I really find interesting is that you because you don't see the same sort of Vic Raw sort of this assiduousness uh, about terrorism. When it comes to American terrorism, because, you know, over the last decade, you know, the, the, the people who've been the, the biggest terrorists in America is coming from white supremacy. You never hear any of them talking about, oh, I'm going to wipe, I'm going to wipe out white, you know, white supremacy in this country. You never hear them say, I'm, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to take out we're going to smoke white supremacy out of this country. 
in the same way they talk about um, uh, terrorism in other places. I wonder why that is. Yeah. And, you know, Stuart, the interesting thing is, you know, you have Ron DeSantis up there and he's in his home turf who has said nothing as Nazis have marched through the state of Florida. There's been numerous instances. Sometimes they're holding his signs that say they support him. He says nothing about it. And the only time we hear about an opposition to Nazism is Vivek Ramaswamy calling the president of uh, calling Vladimir Zelensky a Nazi. He's Jewish. So there is this sort of weird play they're doing there. To talk about that a little bit, and also the other theme that I that I sort of heard last night, especially coming from Tim Scott, is this sort of over-the-top, you know, I'm the sort of bringer of Christianity to the country. He only sort of said he's running to essentially impose a Christian worldview, his particular version of it, on the country. Yeah, you know, I, I think going to make some great points there. There's a sort of rejoicing in violence. You know, violence should be something that is disturbing, that is used as a last resort, that serious governments look at the use of force like that as a failure of uh, public policy when there's no last resort. And they're going to this as sort of a first resort. And look, I, I tend to remember that, you know, we went to war in two uh, countries for like 20 years. We really do not know what the price of that is, what the reality of that is, what it's done to so many Americans and so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of others in other countries. So there's just, you know, this becomes about this sort of strange emotion that they're trying to connect with people by appealing to their worst side. You know, ultimately, a strong country is a country where you feel safe, where you don't have to think about the government. And this intrusiveness about it, um, it's just really not a group of serious people. And I thought that comment that Ramaswamy made about, uh, you know, the president of Ukraine, a Jewish president being a Nazi. I had the depressing realization that I've been to over 40 Republican primary debates in my life. And I think that may have been the worst moment in all of them. And let me tell you, there's been some really bad moments before yeah. with really ridiculous people. But yeah. that was disgraceful. He should drop out of that race. The party should censor him. He should not be on a stage uh, being able to uh, give him a platform for hate speech. I agree. And, and, and ostensibly, he's running to be commander in chief and the person who would have to deal with Volodymyr Zelensky. How would he sit across a table from him, having called that Jewish man a Nazi, somebody who is facing an onslaught from Russia, who's trying to invade and occupy his country? How would he even sit across from him? He's not a serious human being. Really quickly, I do want to talk about that. The man who wasn't there, Donald Trump. I'll stay with you for this to start with this, uh, Stuart. You know, Donald Trump's bill of particulars of what he wants to do is shocking uh, and worse than what they want to do. He's talking about upending completely the rule of law in this country, arresting people that he doesn't like in the country, um, maybe even former generals, et cetera. When you look at them versus him, it, it, should we be comforted that it's not them or frightened that he's even worse? Well, look, um, they were given a chance to say whether or not they would support Donald Trump if he was convicted of a felony and that felony would be for attempting to overthrow the government of the United States, basically. And everybody on that stage said yes, except for Chris Christie. So just think about that. Once you say that, what kind of moral standing do you have to be to lead a country, to lead a party? And, and that really is the problem here. There's nobody who is presenting a, a vision that says, look, the Trump years were a threat to the American experiment. 
They were disastrous. It's even Chris Christie isn't saying that, but yeah. he sadly supported him in two elections. Yeah. And that until the party does that, I don't think that it really has any moral standing to represent the country. Yeah. And, and it's it's incredibly disturbing. Indeed. And I mean, and Nikki Haley, for all her being the most serious, sort of least offensive person on that stage, was still one of the most vicious, talking about wars and bombing Mexico and not caring what the U.N. thought. And when she was playing the game just along with the rest of them and also supported Trump. Before we go, Cornell, I do want to ask you about Joe Manchin. So it looks like Joe Manchin, he says he's not running. I looked at that campaign video that he put out. I'm, I'm sorry, that video he put out announcing he's not going to run. It sounded to me like a like a campaign video. It sounded like, hey, guys, I'm running as a third party candidate. We know that No Labels is out there. What do you think of what he's doing and going to do? I think he's probably going to run because he wants to be president. Joy, they all want to be president in the Senate. Uh, I, I, you know, I've been doing focus groups the last couple of months. There's not a lot of voters out there clamoring <laughs> for for a Mansion presidency. So I, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't think he has a he has a shot. But he, you know, he has the opportunity. I will tell you, uh, to me, he is simply oil and coal in human form. And if he thinks he's running for president, it's because they want him to be president because they feel that he will let them drill, drill, drill until the earth dies. <laughs> that is my theory. And I will not put it on either of you, Cornell Belcher and Stuart Stevens. By the way, the people last night also want to drill until the earth dies. So, you know, God bless us all and God help us. Thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, the events of January 6th provide a backdrop for Trump's upcoming trial in Washington. And the select committee's report on those events will provide the framework. I will talk with a senior investigator from that committee about the tie-in when the readout returns. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. When the federal election interference trial against Donald Trump gets underway in less than four months, Trump is really hoping that the special counsel's team won't be able to even mention the chaos and violence perpetrated by Trump's supporters at the Capitol on January 6th. His attorney argues that the actions are not relevant to his charges and are prejudicial and inflammatory. In a new filing this week, special counsel Jack Smith not only calls out Trump's request as meritless, but also gives us a preview of how his team plans to make January 6th the centerpiece of the trial. The special counsel's filing states, quote, indeed, that day was the culmination of the defendant's criminal conspiracies to overturn the legitimate results of the presidential election. When the defendant directed a large and angry crowd, one that he had summoned to Washington, D.C., and fueled with knowingly false claims of election fraud to the Capitol to obstruct the congressional certification proceeding. When his supporters did so, including through violence, 
the defendant did not try to stop them. Instead, he encouraged them and attempted to leverage their actions by further obstructing the certification, unquote. As Political reports, by combining the Trump allegations with the riots, Smith is unlocking a mountain of case law developed in those January 6 riot cases to tie Trump more clearly to the violence than he has been to date. In short, he's casting Trump as one of the 1,200 plus riot defendants who have already been charged. Joining me now is Sumya Dayananda, former senior investigator on the House January 6th Select Committee. Sumya, it's great to see you. Let's talk about this, because one of the things that is sort of odd about Donald Trump's attempts to say that January 6th is too prejudicial to use is that he's using it. He's using a song recorded by incarcerated January 6th defendants on the campaign trail. He continually talks about January 6th as a beautiful day. He references it. So legally, just for our non-lawyers in the audience, how is it possible that he, his lawyers can claim it's not relevant when he's using it? Yeah, Joy, I think that uh, Donald Trump's team is trying to do a classic attempt of what defense attorneys do of having it both ways. So he, as the defendant, can't be proud of the rioters that he has been so has said publicly in so many different ways how the January 6th was a beautiful day and how it was a peaceful protest. And then attempt to use that same conduct that he essentially incited and to say that it can't be used in terms of a criminal trial. So as the motion that was filed lays out, not only is the conduct of of Donald Trump on January 6th relevant, it's highly probative to the charge scheme of the indictment itself. You know, when I watched the January 6th uh, hearings, which were fascinating and felt like a trial in many ways, one of the most interesting uh, things that I heard was Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony about Donald Trump's reaction to finding out that some in the crowd who were trying to get in to watch his speech were armed. So I want to play a little bit of that for to just refresh everyone's memory. Here is Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. So one of the things that the questions that I had during the hearings was whether or not they were the, you know, it, whether or not, you know, legally Donald Trump would ever be held accountable for the violence, because there was always that question of whether you could directly tie him to the actual violent acts. Does this become evidence if he wanted armed people to come through the magnetometers and then armed people came through the magnetometers and committed violence? Is that enough to convict him the way some of these proud boys and oath keepers have been convicted? Well, I think it's important to remember he's not being charged with the seditious conspiracy. So the evidence that has to be presented to the jury doesn't need to show that he intended to cause violence that day. What he did intend to to do is to halt the joint session that day. So is it important and part of, again, his motive and intent to show that he was aware that the rioters in the crowd had access to weapons. Yes, because then it goes to what happened that day. His mm-hmm. his that testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson was that he learned about it on the morning of the morning of the uh, of January sixth, and yet and still he incited those rioters 
to go to the Capitol. He encouraged them to fight, to go to the, to, uh, go to the Capitol itself. And in that way, it goes to his intent to halt the proceeding. And let me just play one of the people who actually did listen to Donald Trump's words and do what he asked them to do. This is a gentleman. His name is Stephen Ayers, who testified at the January 6th committees. You will well remember him, but I'm going to refresh the audience's memory. Here is Stephen Ayers' testimony about the rioters, the insurrectionists listening to Trump. Here he is. As soon as that come out, everybody started talking about it. And that's it seemed like it started to disperse. Basically, when President Trump put his tweet out, we literally left right after that come out. Um, you know, to me, if he would have done that earlier in the day, 1.30, I, I, you know, you know, we wouldn't be in this, maybe we wouldn't be in this bad of a situation or something. So should we expect to see people like Mr. Ayers testify at Donald Trump's trial? And here's my other key question. Could we expect to see some of the convicted higher level insurrectionists People like Enrique Tarrio, people like uh, Elmer Rhodes testify against Trump. So absolutely, as far as Stephen Ayers is concerned, I think that his testimony for the January 6th hearings was incredibly compelling. He laid out that he was following social media intensely, the December 19th tweet of the former president to come to the riot, uh, to come to January 6th that day, the Be There, Be Wild tweet. He also testified that he showed up to D.C. with no intent to actually go to the Capitol until he heard the words from the former president himself to, to march the Capitol. And then he did so, thinking that the former president was going to be joining them. And he also, probably most compelling, is that when the former president put out the tweet to leave the Capitol, he did so. So now the prosecution team should look to other witnesses who would have similar testimony. I don't think that Mr. Ayers is a unicorn in that manner. There are other folks that would be able to show that once they got the tweet, they left. And I think the footage reflects that, that they received it and then they dispersed. As far as your second question, Joy, about the other defendants, if the prosecution team is able to get defendants who have been sentenced already and therefore won't have any incentive to testify at the trial of Donald Trump, that would be incredibly compelling um, testimony as far as they, they too were fueled by the lies that the election was stolen and then organized for their own, uh, whether it's the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, to attend the, the rally that day. Yeah, that would be fascinating if that were to happen. Uh, Somia Dayananda, thank you very very much. And still ahead, Israel agrees to a daily humanitarian pause in hostilities as tens of thousands of civilians try to escape the assault on Gaza. More next. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today, the White House said that Israel will begin daily four-hour pauses in its military campaign in the Gaza Strip amid growing pressure to allow more aid to get into Gaza and more hostages held by Hamas to be released. While speaking to reporters today, President Biden also said there is no possibility of a Gaza ceasefire. It's an answer that Americans are increasingly rejecting, including Americans who work on the Hill. More than 100 congressional staffers participated in a vigil in front of the Capitol building Wednesday, calling on members of Congress to support a ceasefire in Gaza. President Biden continues to face pressure for restraint after his full-fledged support for Israel and its right-wing government. It's a dilemma that exploded into the headlines when a veteran State Department official in the bureau that oversees arms transfers resigned in protest of the Biden administration's decision to boost military aid to Israel. In his resignation letter posted on LinkedIn on October 18th, Josh Paul wrote, quote, we cannot be both against occupation and for it. We cannot be both for freedom and against it. And we cannot be for a better world while contributing to one that is materially worse. I believe to the core of my soul that the response Israel is taking and with it, the American support both for that response and for the status quo of the occupation will only lead to more and deeper suffering for both the Israeli and Palestinian people and is not in the long term American interest. And Josh Paul joins me now. Mr. Paul, thank you for being here. Uh, I, I would like you to say more. Um, you said we cannot be both for occupation and against it. What do you what did you mean by that in your letter? So I think and thank you very much for having me. Sure. I think what discriminates uh, the United States from the global competitors that we have from our adversaries is our values. And when we look at a context, for example, like Ukraine, where we are supporting what I believe to be a just fight uh, for sovereignty and for safety of civilians, uh, I, I think we have an important case to make there. When we turn around, on the other hand, and support the bombing of civilians, enable the bombing of civilians, uh, I, I think that undermines our credibility. I think it undermines our values across the world. You know, when Russia bombs hospitals, we condemn it as a war crime. When Russia takes out the power grid of a country, we condemn it as a war crime. Uh, but when Israel does it, we provide the bombs. Let me uh, talk about a little about your background. You came in in 2012 during the Obama administration. You stayed through the Trump administration. Uh, and uh, I read in the, the, the New Yorker piece about you that you actually had a letter of resignation ready to go um, and didn't feel ultimately that you needed to use it. Um, what specifically about Biden's policies caused you to use it now? So arms transfers are morally complex, often challenging, often set of wicked problems to which there are good, no, no good answers. Uh, but in my time in the State Department, I was often able to feel that I was making a difference, raising concerns, working with others to address and mitigate the worst possible outcomes of our transfers. What was different here is two things. First of all, it is the context. Uh, what we see in Gaza is a humanitarian catastrophe. And we knew that we were providing arms into that catastrophe. We continue to do so. The other thing that was different was when I tried to raise these concerns, as I had previously in multiple other cases where there were human rights concerns uh, to be thought of, to be addressed, uh, I was met on this occasion with silence. Uh, there was no opportunity for debate, no opportunity for discussion, no opportunity for mitigation, simply direction to move forward. 
Uh, as part of your work, um, for a time you lived in Ramallah, uh, which is in the occupied West Bank. What did you see and hear there? And how do you think the West Bank is being impacted by what's happening in Gaza from your point of view? So in Ramallah, I was part of a U.S.-led uh, organization, the U.S. Security Coordinator, that is there on the principle that if the Palestinian security forces can stand up, the Israelis can stand down and we can have a two-state solution. That's not how it worked. Uh, I repeatedly saw, of course, on the day-to-day -day basis, the humiliations that Palestinians suffer um, and the expansion of settlements, the expansion of settlement infrastructure, uh, continued incursions by Israelis into Palestinian homes and schools and territories. Um, I think that, you know, what is happening in the West Bank now should be deeply concerning to all of us. I think there is a great risk of destabilization. We have seen increasing settler attacks and we have seen Palestinian villagers, many of whom have lived in their villages all their lives, being forced out in the last few weeks. This is the great unreported story of the current conflict in, Ga in the West Bank and Gaza. What do you think are the differences, having served in the administrations of three presidents, um, President Biden, President Obama and Donald Trump? Are there differences in the way these three presidents have approached this situation? Uh, yes. And also, of course, I served in the uh, George W. Bush administration. Right. Um, and I think there are there are small differences, but I think we have walked ourselves into a bit of a corner. Uh, we have assumed that the direction we were taking, the path we were on, was the only one that would work. And what it has led to, unfortunately, is not security or peace, neither for Palestinians nor for Israelis. It is a moribund policy. And yet we have just dug deeper, as we continue to do now, rather than stopping and asking ourselves, is this working? Is this who we are? Is this who we want to be? You've had the opportunity, uh, because of the, the tenure and the timing of when you were um, in your job, uh, to have experienced Benjamin Netanyahu. He has been, for 14 of the last 16 years, uh, the leader of Israel, the prime minister. Uh, do, do you see in his actions any commitment, ultimately, to solve this the way I think most people logically understand it must be solved, meaning a two-state solution? No. And I think we have to be very cautious when we talk about Prime Minister Netanyahu, because his interests are not necessarily Israel's interests. Uh, when he calls for arms, when he decides to launch a military campaign, uh, we must remember that he is a prime minister facing indictment uh, with his own political skin on the line. And I think we have to be very cautious about separating out what is truly uh, in the interests of our partners and what is actually in the political interests of their government. What would you like to see President Biden do differently? And have you heard from the administration in any way or anyone from it since you've resigned? So I think what I would like to see President Biden do is call for a ceasefire. Uh, the UN Secretary General has called for a ceasefire. President Biden has called for a humanitarian pause. And I think there's something quite Orwellian, if you really think about it, uh, in the sense that a humanitarian pause is four hours out of 20, where there are not bombs dropping in one specific area. And by calling for a humanitarian pause and by Israel implementing them, uh, the president can point to this and say, look, we're making progress. We're making humanitarian progress. Uh, and at the same time, continue to supply the arms that are causing damage and devastation the other 20 hours of the day. So I think a ceasefire is the number one priority. And then to your second question, I've heard from so many good people across this country, but also in this administration uh, on the Hill, all of whom are finding this incredibly difficult, uh, both for policy reasons and for moral ones. Josh Paul, uh, thank you for spending some time with us this evening. Uh, your experience is very instructive for all of us to learn from. Thank you. Thank you.
And coming up, the Actors Union becomes the latest labor organization to reach an agreement as labor reasserts itself with the help of the Biden White House. SAG after President Fran Drescher joins me tonight. Wall Street didn't build America. The middle middle class built America. And unions built the middle class. These deals are game changers. Not only for UAW workers, but for all workers in America. You helped everybody. And look, and I want to thank you for your commitment to to the solidarity for exercising your right to bargain collectively. That was President Joe Biden in Illinois today in his fetching red sweater, celebrating the United Auto Workers deals with three major auto plants. Workers not only got significant wage increases, but their deal actually reopened the plant Biden was speaking at in Belvedere. That the president had personally called the Stellantis CEO about opening the plant and in an historic move joined the UAW on their picket line. It's a huge time for unions, with workers taking hundreds of labor actions since January. Just yesterday, the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas reached a deal with MGM right before they were set to strike. Last month, the Writers Guild ratified an historic agreement with studios after striking for 148 days. And last night, SAG-AFTRA, whose hundreds of thousands of actors had been on strike for a record 118 days, announced they had come to a tentative agreement with the studios. Now, I should note that Comcast, NBC's parent company, is one of the companies represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, and that some editorial employees of NBC's news division are represented by the Writers Guild. In a statement last night, SAG-AFTRA said, in a contract valued at over $1 billion, we have achieved a deal of extraordinary scope that includes above-pattern minimum compensation increases, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation that will protect members from the threat of AI, and for the first time, establishes a streaming participation bonus. Throughout this tumultuous period, the union was led by the iconic Fran Drescher, formerly known as TV's The Nanny. And she joins me next. This sends a very clear message that unions work, labor movements work. It was a hot labor summer turned into a hot labor annual. And now, you know, we can do it. Like, keep going. Unionize if you're not. They work because we are the people who make businesses move. That was actor Marlo Sue celebrating the SAG after deal and the power of unions. Now, our plan was to talk with Fran Drescher. Now, we did have a technical issue. We're going to try to get her back and we're going to go quickly to a break while we try to work out those technical issues. So hopefully you will stay with us because we know this is a super important story to everyone. I think a lot of people are excited that your favorite films and movies and TV will be coming back because of the power of unions. And I think that what happened with SAG after demonstrates that power. So we are working very hard to try to get this interview to happen for you because we know you all want to see it. Uh, Where are we at this point? I think we're going to we're going to take a quick break. We're going to take a quick break. and We'll be right back. You know what I hate? I hate when you tease something and then it doesn't happen. Apologies. We were not able to get Fran Drescher back. We will have her on again. We love her. uh, And she did a great job on that negotiation. And that is tonight's readout. that 
That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.